Venture is the only asset class where you have a shot at 100x returns and generational wealth, even as an investor, not as a founder. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Zane Jaffer. He's a partner at Bluefield Capital. Bluefield Capital has a billion-dollar real estate portfolio and investments in land apartment, warehouses, hotels, offices, and senior care facilities. But interestingly, Zane also invests in startups. Prior to starting Bluefield Capital, he was a successful serial entrepreneur. He was the founder of Wungle, and he was also the CEO of Media Roots. We'll talk a lot about his journey through entrepreneurship, how he switched to investments, and what does he look for in founders now. Zane, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about yourself, starting with where you grew up. You grew up outside London, right? Yeah, I grew up near the airport. And it's funny because my parents were uh, refugees. They fled East Africa to come to the UK with no money. And so I grew up in Hayes, which is very close to Heathrow Airport. How did your early childhood in the UK and leading up to King's College in London shape your thinking and outlook? My 23andMe test basically says I'm 100% Indian. And so my parents are Indian and they put a lot of pressure on me to study and go to university. I didn't want to do that, actually. I was addicted to computers. And because I grew up in a rough neighborhood, I managed to stay out of trouble by learning how to code, building websites. And so that was my life, really. A lot of the people I grew up with, unfortunately, didn't do very well for themselves. For me, I thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was actually running a startup. I didn't want to go to university, but my parents pushed me very hard. And I made a deal with my parents. I said to my mom, Indians and hygiene is very important for us. And I really <laughs> don't want to be in a dorm room type of environment. And I also said, if I get into a top university, then I'll go. So my mom agreed to that. I got into King's College London. There was like a one in eight chance I would get into the only accommodation where you have your own ensuite toilet. <laughs> Unfortunately, I got into that. And so I had nothing to say to my parents. I, I went to university and even when I was there, I couldn't help but be quite entrepreneurial, and I did numerous projects, you know, I always had that itch. After a successful journey through a few startups, including the one that you founded, Vungle, you switched to the investing side, and you chose PropTech. What's exciting about PropTech? PropTech basically is property technologies, and it's about helping real estate be more efficient. Being a startup founder, it was terrifying that my entire net worth was concentrated in one illiquid stock. One day you think you're going to take over the world. Next day you realize you, you might go bankrupt and have nothing. I always saw other people in real estate making a lot of money, especially with leveraging their money, taking advantage of tax-efficient vehicles, and getting cash flow from real estate. And there I was as a founder, not taking any salary for many years. So I thought to myself, real estate's a meaningful people's portfolios, and I want to actively manage my own real estate. I want to understand how real estate works. As I started to buy real estate, and I even joined a private equity fund where I could scale up buying real estate, that's when I realized, wow, the scale of problems that technology can solve is unlimited. A good way for me to cure the itch is a shift from being an operator to more of a capital allocator. 
being a venture capitalist and also real estate private yeah i remember looking at open doors s1 filings and they shared that the real estate industry is going through digital transformation and like 0.5% of the industry has technology applications there's a long way to go for the real estate industry to adopt technology we're starting at the very early stages i'm really curious how did you change your perspectives on startups as a founder you were in the middle of the arena you were the striker you had the ball but now as an investor you're not how does staying in the shoes of a founder running a company help you now as an investor you know it's been a very difficult transition when i first started investing i was so optimistic because as a founder especially when you've had a lot of success we started vongo and in our first year we did 850000 revenue next year 15 million the year after 56 million and it just kept growing so when you talk at a big market everything works and you're optimistic i was very optimistic when i first started investing in founders and startups and it was very easy for me to get to a quick yes and i didn't really do much due diligence and because it was my own money i didn't really care i just looked at it as a portfolio i want to help founders i was very naive in that it's quite tough to pick winners and after a while you need to be a lot more cynical you need to be saying no a lot more than you say yes and i think today i've become one of these cynical venture capitalists that is constantly saying no when i first started investing everything was like oh this is great i love the founders energy and the passion you invest in them and then my first maybe five investments have all gone to zero whereas i look at my last 5 10 they're doing really really well i can appreciate now how there's some baggage you bring with you if you are a founder that's been successful you automatically think everyone else is going to be successful it's going to be easy that's not the reality <laughs> yeah there's this tinge of optimism because you know that things can work and it's just around the corner and if they get it right it will be huge you've seen that happen in your own life you have that hope for every startup but that doesn't turn out to be the case with every investment it's sometimes sad to see founders struggle How do you hold back when you know that I know exactly what I need to do with this company if I was the CEO I would do this. <laughs> How do you hold back and say well you know it's not my company I'm here to support but you, you know it's it's still very hard because sometimes you're like damn it I can do this myself you you just need to do x y and z and you'll be fine you don't want to be a, a meddling investor I had a few of those and it made my life hell The thing is with investors who don't have operational experience you do start to discount the advice they give you. I feel like the entrepreneurs making a mistake here and I feel like it shouldn't be this difficult or or this needs to change that needs to change and it was also tough. I think also some founders need to learn to work with their investors and leverage their investors well. If I invest in you, I love to help when it comes to scaling your company and giving you advice on things a normal VC might struggle to give you advice with. On the other hand, I get a lot of founders asking me questions about, you know, oh, I've got this legal term sheet. Can you help me understand this? It's like, well, that's kind of boring for me. I'm still a founder at heart, you know. I'll bring my partner on board, one of my partners in the fund. He, he's a former attorney, so that's when I loop in. And I do love working with founders and helping them. It is tough, though, holding back when you're like, oh, you know, I've, I feel like I could do this myself. But, you know, it's also this. When you're a founder and you grow your team and you bring on an executive team, you have to stop micromanaging. Learn to let your executive team make their own mistakes and you have to empower them and you have to have them learn through failure as well. And so it's the same with founders. Even though you have a strong opinion that the way the founders are attacking the problem isn't the right way to do it, you have to remember when you're an investor, you also need to empower your founders and let them figure it out themselves and guide them and support them rather than 
micromanage and make their life miserable. That is true. It's two different worlds as a founder and as an investor. The mindset, the outlook, the decision-making process, the analysis, everything's kind of different as a founder compared to how you do all of those things as an investor. Tell me if you agree with me. This might be a controversial point of view. I feel that founders who turn into investors on one side have a significant advantage because they've been in the shoes of the founder. They understand what it means to run a business and they probably faced many of those problems firsthand themselves. So they can impart that knowledge. Don't make the mistake I made or here's how I solved the problem. It worked for me. Those kind of practical examples from real life experiences are very valuable. But on the other hand, it's one point of data in the life of one founder at one point in time in the past. A professional investor usually has multiple points of data and has a way to think about all of that, synthesize it, and support the startup. I often struggle with that because I do want to respect entrepreneurs who switch to the investment side, but I feel like they're too narrow-minded because it worked for them in that situation. It may not work in this new situation. And that is a really difficult transition for many entrepreneurs who decide to become investors. I agree with you here. I made this mistake myself. I was on the board of a startup and I kept relating what the founder was doing and the way he was running his company to the way I was doing it. And the founder worked up the courage to tell me as a board member, look, your experience is one experience. We're in a different industry. We don't have the same dynamics. I was so grateful for that founder for telling me that. And since then, across multiple companies, I hold back a lot more from sharing what worked for me as a founder in my industry if it isn't relevant. I came from the marketing technology industry and I'm playing in PropTech. I see many similarities, but there are lots of things that are wildly different. As I've made more and more investments, I'm now able to draw on a richer variety of data points. I sit on more company boards and I see more failures and successes. I can pattern much more. And the more I realize that my one experience, although it was like a diamond amongst the other gems around here, it's not the right tool to use. Sometimes as a hammer, sometimes as a knife, sometimes as a screwdriver. My experience is only one of many tools, and I think I've got a richer perspective now. You know what I've learned? It's so hard as well. I was very, very lucky, and I hated it when people said, oh, you know, you're lucky. When you're a founder and you work 24-7 and really hard, you hate people saying that you're lucky. You want credit for the hard work you and your team do. I I generated 200x returns for my investors. I would love to have that kind of uh, exit. You're not going to get that just in 30 companies. You need to have a much larger portfolio. And I realize very few companies can generate the sort of exit that I was able to generate for investors. And so that's an extreme isolated example. You actually learn more from failures, I think, than your successes. And that also holds true as an investor as well. It's incredibly insightful. You're sharing your personal journey here. Now that you're an investor and you've invested in 30 plus companies, what do you look for in founders? What kind of founders inspire you? Everyone can answer that question generically. I'll give you more of a stronger opinion. I don't like founders who are already planning for an exit. And I tend to hear this a lot from founders in countries where there isn't a good VC ecosystem. I like founders that want to swing for the fences and want to take a company public and want to just you know, dominate. So to me, that that's a key criteria. There's a lot of deals I haven't done that would have been a good 3x, 5x, just because the founder or the board were too focused on an exit. And I experienced that too. Had I not sold my company, it would have been far larger. So much returns are to be had at the late stage. It's like every year you hold on, you double, triple your previous year's worth of combined returns. So I, I look for founders who aren't going to want to sell too early. 
So I get that if an entrepreneur tells you that I'm planning to build this business, there's a 90% chance uh, you'll get a 2x on your investment and will sell in the next two years. That's not very exciting for you. No, no, I wouldn't do it. I mean, there's so many other asset classes where you can generate, not easily, but there's a shot at generating a 2x. If you're deploying money in venture, not only is there a higher IRR that you want to generate for your LPs, you're putting money here because you want that shot at 100x. You don't want a bunch of 2Xs and 3Xs, and that was hard for me to learn. I'll give you a quick anecdote, okay? I was thinking of selling some secondary stock once. Uh, I never sold any secondary. I, I cashed out everything at the exit, but I was looking to sell When stock. you were a founder at Vungle. Yeah, when I was a founder at Vungle, when I had an offer for uh, what would have been 250 to $300 million secondary, right, in terms of overvaluation. Maybe a year later, the business sells for 780 and the secondary would have been, you know, 250 300 I got back in touch with that investor because, you know, he felt the price was too high back then. I was like, you missed out. You made a mistake. And he goes, dude, if I would have invested in the secondary and all I got was a 2X or 3X, I wouldn't have had any pats in my back. When I'm investing in the secondary as an asset class, I want to get a 10X, not a 2 or 3X. Oh, wow. I thought you would have been like really upset you missed out. And of course, everyone wants an easy 2 or 3X. But when you look at an investment, you really need to think about 10X, 100X returns, not 2 or 3X. So I'm giving that analogy because that was late stage, but also there's a very well-respected investor who, who obviously didn't buy the stock because he thought it was expensive, but he still stuck by his rationale. And I'm here today and I've missed out on two, three, four, five Xs. I don't care. I want the 10X, 100X. Life's too short. Okay. I'm with you that long-term substantial upside is what a good VC looks for. And that's what you look for as well. How do you assess that in the first one or two meetings? What questions do you ask them? If you ask a founder, hey, do you want to do an IPO or do you want to sell in two years? They would tell you, I want to go all the way and do an IPO. And especially if they've listened to this podcast, they are going (laughs) to tell you, yeah, I want to do an IPO. But how do you really assess that? What is the real ambition? How far do you think they would really go? I don't think you can get the answer by asking directly. And you only ask directly when you don't get the other signals. You can tell with the language, the passion, the excitement that the founder has, how they quantify the market size. Eventually, they speak your language. It clicks. You know, there are some pitches I see where it's like, wow, they've really laid out the market size clearly, pointed out to other companies and comparables and valuations, and their revenue milestones are quite aggressive, but they've got the traction to support it. And this founder is very ambitious. So I see this a lot with technical founders, by the way. Technical founders want to build everything. They want to build an ecosystem. And the risk-reward ratio does favor a lot of technical founders at the early stage because they can build the product correctly. So I think it's not a question I ask directly. It's a feeling I get. But of course, if someone volunteers, I really think we could sell the business for 2x, 3x in a few years. That's a red flag for me if they outright say that. And a founder needs to be honest. You don't want investors that aren't aligned with you. Once I back a founder, I'll do everything to support them. But I've got the opportunity to say no before I invest. Once I've invested, by default, support in every way I can. But I, I don't want to invest in a startup just a two or three extra turn. My public market stock portfolio has got a bunch of two and three Xs too. I mean, there's so many asset classes where you can two, three X. Venture is the only asset class where you have a shot at 100 extra turns and generational wealth as an investor, not as a founder. What happens in that first meeting? What do you ask them? What do you want to observe? I want a conversation and I want to understand why they exist. Why do you exist? And is there a relation to your existence to the company mission? I find that some founders were just born to do this company. And when you see those founders, that's when it really gets exciting. One founder behind Digibuild is is building blockchain for the construction technology industry. 
And the construction is full of fraud. People don't trust each other. One of the founders, she's a strong female founder. She volunteered that her dad committed suicide because of all the stress. And lots and lots of people in the industry do commit suicide. It has the highest rate of suicide. She wants to solve this. She wants to make construction more transparent. And blockchain is a great way to do that. Look, I got questions about blockchain. I don't know if it's going to succeed or not. But I cannot afford to miss out on this round. She's so passionate. And Rob, the, the, her other co-founder, the CEO, is, is also from the construction industry and worked with his dad. It's like, wow, these people were born to do this company. Another founder, her name is uh, Ashley, and she runs a company called AuditMade. And she and her family comes from the elevator industry. The elevator industry is run by large family companies that are worth tens of billions of dollars. They make 50% of their revenues from selling maintenance contracts. There is a big opportunity to improve that maintenance and allow companies to get better deals. I actually came from that industry, her family's. She literally cried in a meeting because she was so upset with how there was so little transparency in the elevator industry and how clients were getting ripped off. And so she decided, you know what, I'm going to go head to head against the very industry I came from. I want to bring transparency. When you hear founding stories like that, where it feels like their life purpose is this, that's very exciting to back versus... I went to Harvard Business School. I did a market analysis. I saw that this is a hot industry. And so I pivoted a few times. And this seems to be the company I want to build. The founding story is what I really want to get in that first meeting. And then everything else follows after that. Yeah, these MBA types that use Gartner's quadrants to show where the market <laughs> size is, that's not as exciting. Why do you exist? And that seems to come through in the examples that you shared there's a visceral reaction. There's a personal connection to why they're doing what they're doing. And that's very exciting to hear. Agree. Yes. How long does it take for you to make a decision whether to invest or not after a few meetings? I'm the type of guy that when a salesperson calls me and they've got charisma, I really appreciate what they've gone through to get a meeting with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, and I want to buy their product just to support them. <laughs> so <laughs> I have to be very careful. I force myself to sleep on the decision. I follow a very deliberate due diligence process. And look, the process varies because I wear two hats, okay? On one hand, I'm a former entrepreneur and I run a family office. On the other hand, I've also got LPs and it's not just my money. Most of the time now, I wear my venture capital hat and I'm much more focused on those. And those are larger checks too. In that situation, it takes a while to get to a yes. I look to get to a no much faster than a yes because I don't want to waste the firm's time. So assuming the first meeting goes well, then I will discuss it with my investment committee or my partners, we'll review the deck, discuss what the reaction is. Then we'll try to identify if this is a prop tech startup. We know a lot of people in prop tech because we are real estate owners. Why don't we call our own portfolio? We, we own buildings throughout the US, hotels and multifamily apartments, you name it. Let's call some of these apartments and hotels, and industrial warehouses and see what they think. Can they be a potential customer? So we do a lot of due diligence. We also have a lot of limited partners that come from the real estate industry. We'll also see if that's something that they're willing to engage with. That way, when we invest in the founder, we've de-risked the investment because we know the industry. We don't have to just necessarily go with their references. We can do our own research. And we can potentially come with some customers so that when we invest, we can create traction for the company. That process has happened as quickly as uh, two weeks. But I prefer to build a relationship, and sometimes it can take a month or two. So we, on the venture side, are a lot slower than I am on the angel investing side. You started the question of why, and then during the due diligence process, you already begin to think about how you can support the company with the introductions yes. that you can make with your own portfolio of investments in real estate, and you get deeper into the business. Right, yes. 
Very few investments go all the way through where you say, yes, I want to invest and you close the transaction. Most of them don't. What's the most common reason for you to say no? Besides the first question, are you building a long-term business that will fit with the venture business model? Let's say we pass that question. What other reasons come up often when you say no? I usually won't take the meeting until I can see a deck unless the circumstances where there isn't. And that way I can try to see if this is a competitive conflict or not. I don't want any potential conflicts. And I might not take a meeting if I perceive conflict. If it's a gray area, I will usually ask the founder who is pitching me if they're comfortable. I will let them know what my portfolio looks like. They can easily find that out. Before they even get a meeting with me, they get an automated email with my portfolio. And one of the things highlighted there is please check there's no conflict because I don't want to be in that situation. I treat confidentiality very, very seriously. As long as there's no conflict, then I'll, I'll take further meetings. Sometimes the founder might think there's no conflict, but one of my portfolio companies might think there is a conflict. <laughs> I have to navigate that too, which is tough. Assuming that works out, another reason I say no is the market size just simply isn't big enough. I want to see a market size that can support a 100x outcome. If you assume your average valuation is 7 to $10 million post at this stage, then you need a billion dollar exit to achieve that. If I can't work backwards and see how there can be a billion dollar exit, then I'm less likely to do it. I'm really looking for a 100x because I find once a company can get 10x, a couple of years later, it fetch 20x, 50x, 100x. You know, you just never know, right? It's just hard to get off the ground until you're in the 10x plus category. If 10x is a stretch, I'm not going to do it. But if 100x is foreseeable, they might land anywhere. Like they say, shoot for the stars and you might at least end up, you know, at, in the moon. That's right. If you shoot for the stars, you end up on the moon. If you aim for the moon, you may end up on the roof. If you aim <laughs> for the roof, you barely jump off the ground. It's important to aim high. It's difficult to say no. And that's unfortunately the more frequent answer from a venture capital investor. Glad to see that you have a methodical process on how you approach this. And it kills me, by the way. And, and many times founders have turned my no into a, a maybe, into a yes. I, I'm in a situation right now where I've got more deals than I can handle. I can't kill these deals. I'm trying to find a way to say no. But every time I bring a concern to the founder, they address that concern so well. I'm like, okay, wow. Okay, so I explained my concerns to the founder. They addressed it. I thought I was out, but I didn't understand it. And now I do. This ticks all my boxes. You want to find a way to say yes. But when you have 10 deals to look at, you have to choose between a good company and a great company. And so you, sometimes as a VC, you have to just unfortunately pit them against each other and be like, okay, here's are the pros and cons. This one has more cons. I'm going to have to unfortunately say goodbye to this good opportunity. I want a great opportunity. Yeah, we have limited number of opportunities to invest. We can't invest in every good company we see. So we have to be very selective. At the time, at the early stages, they all look good, but you got to pick one that you want to follow through. Sometimes you have to say no even to some good startups. That often breaks my heart. Exactly. Uh, this is really good, Zane. You're giving me a lot of really fun stories. So you've been a founder, you've been an investor, actively investing in 30 plus companies, and you have a methodical process. You have a way of connecting with the founders, even finding ways to help them. What's your view on Silicon Valley in general? How people show up? Where do you think we are? Are we in a hype cycle at the peak? Are investors behaving in the right way to support entrepreneurs? What's your view? Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to tackle it in a different way because uh, Silicon Valley is just Silicon Valley. Now it's New York, Austin. Now it's Miami. It's everywhere. Look, venture is getting very heated. More and more money is flowing to late stage, and it isn't necessarily trickling down to the seed and pre-seed stages. However, when it comes to me as an investor, 
I'm wary of Silicon Valley types. I was a Silicon Valley type myself, you know. I, I mean, although I came from a, a poor family, I, I got spoiled here in Silicon Valley. You know, I made a lot of money, right? And you live in this ecosystem, this chamber, where you don't get a realistic view of how the world looks outside. And again, I'm using Silicon Valley as a metaphor for all these hot tech hubs. Yeah, it's a bubble we live in. Yeah. But founders who come from these types of places, technical founders especially, sometimes build technology for themselves. You get this analogy of Silicon Valley building technology for Silicon Valley. This is very common in PropTech. I see a lot of founders building great technologies for people that are, are wealthy, who live in Class A luxury high-rise buildings. I don't necessarily get excited by that. I get excited by technology that's going to impact the everyday person. The average renter who has a, a net worth of $6,800, America's working class and the people that live below the poverty line, they're the ones who need the prop technology. They're not the ones who are interested in these luxury amenities. They're the ones who struggle to pay their rent on time and need some fintech solutions or need some solutions to help them. I look for that and I'm starting to invest in companies a lot more focused on affordable housing, workforce housing, making a good societal impact whilst making money at the same time. Yeah, sometimes Silicon Valley startups have this approach for solving first world problems. And, you know, it's a lot more exciting to build a business that touches people's lives in a meaningful way. Also, that's an underserved market. Not a lot of entrepreneurs look at those markets. It's a very fulfilling endeavor to go out and build a business that way instead of targeting some very niche, high class problem that exists in bubbles like Silicon Valley. I'm glad that you highlighted that part of your mission with your investments. Now that you've been in this journey as an entrepreneur and as an investor, you've seen the venture world. If there was one thing you would change about venture capital, what would you change? Oh, that's an amazing question. I think information transparency is very important. It's crazy that and you're asking me, how fast do I get to a yes? It's crazy that I need to get to a yes very quickly. Suddenly, if I say yes to a founder, I'm tied to the hip of that founder, especially if I join the board. And it could be a 10-year relationship. There's so much you have to learn in such a short amount of time. You're going to be backing a founder. I just wish there was more information, transparency. I wish investors were more honest. I wish founders were more honest. I just wish there was more information to make the decision, more time to get to spend and know a founder and ensure a mutual fit. Some people aren't going to be as confrontational upfront. And unfortunately, if they're not upfront with the founders they back, I've experienced this too, by the way. Okay, I'm speaking as a founder, right? I've had investors who were not necessarily upfront about their motivations or their return criteria. You know, I had investors that were banging on the door for a quick exit, for example. I didn't want a quick exit. I wanted to take my company to the stars. But yeah, we landed on the moon. It's great. But, you know, <laughs> I think it's important you get the right fit between the founder and investor. I don't know how you solve that. Yeah, that's a tricky question. The incentives are not always perfectly aligned. You'll find that yourself at odds where as a founder, an investor pushes you to make certain decisions that may not be aligned with where you want to go. And look, I think if I can dive into that, right? I always heard about this concept of, as a founder, you don't care about LPs, man. I just want a VC who believes in me and wants to help me achieve my mission. You know what? You have got to appreciate what it's like for the VC who has LPs. You talk to LPs and what's your track record? What markups have you had in your fund? How can you make sure you can exit companies when they don't look like they're succeeding? These are the questions LPs will ask you. And if you're starting out and you're managing a $3 million, $10 million, $20 million fund, you're not going to make much money no matter how successful that first fund is. Instead, you need to go raise more money for your next fund. 
And that's where the challenge lies, you see. When a VC is trying to raise the next fund and they've got portfolio companies that could return the fund, they want to quickly exit those so they can get a track record and raise their new fund. Think about the economics. Managing a $10 million fund versus a $100 million fund. A $100 million fund, a 2% management fee is $2 million bucks a year. The carry, if you turn $100 million into $300 million, you've got $200 million of profits. That's $40 million of GP carry. It doesn't happen in the same way. So you've got to appreciate as a founder that there are these conflicts of interest that do exist inherently because of how venture capital is structured. When founders have that empathy for their VCs and understand the VC's motivations, it becomes easier for them to align with the right kind of VC. Uh, there's this classic example of uh, Apple investment by Sequoia. They invested $150,000 at $6 million valuation, but Sequoia sold just before the IPO uh, oh, because no. the, the LPs wanted to optimize for taxes and they sold for what could have been 100 times more in the future if Sequoia had held on. I think these kind of experiences is what pushed Sequoia to consider this evergreen fund where they don't have to worry about exits and they can go for the long term and still support the founders in whatever form they want to keep the company. There are a lot of things to change in venture capital, and this is certainly one important piece. So We're coming to the end of our conversation. I want to ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? Oh, yeah, so many. I've got my own foundation, but climate change is something I, I care a lot about. And we are executive producers in, and we're also sponsoring a range of climate change documentaries. A lot of these documentaries focus on the working class person, especially in Asia and India specifically. So we're going around to villages in India, and we're talking to the fishermen. We're talking to the, the mom and pop village people and asking them how their life is impacted by the impacts of climate change. I feel like raising awareness for this is very important. Thank you very much for spending time with me, sharing insightful stories about how you feel about founders and as a founder, how you felt about the investors that you dealt with, what we can change about the industry, and also specifically talking about what you look for when you make investments. Thanks a lot for sharing your nuggets of wisdom. I look forward to sharing your nuggets with the world. Thank you for providing such a great platform. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.